Welcome back to A Push for Understanding. This is chapter 15 of Spielvogel, The Great Exploration of Europeans. Um, I have not read all of Spielvogel yet, but as I would imagine, there's probably going to be a follow-up uh, to this chapter, uh, probably called something like Scramble for Africa or European Colonization, because Europeans really like going everywhere but Europe. Um... They really like colonizing. And this is going to be a big theme because money um, and other things, but mostly money, mostly money. Uh, the Europeans like a lot of things, but they like world conquest first and money second, both of which go hand in hand. So um, you're probably going to get deja vu later on in the year. But anyway, um, this first episode of exploration, as I'll call it, is going to be divided into three sections. Uh, the first section is going to focus mostly on Spain and Portugal. The second section is going to focus on the Dutch. And the third section is going to focus on uh, the English and the French. And then probably going to throw in something like a fourth section, talking about the greater implications of this and uh, what exploration is going to look like. Um for probably the next 200 years of European history, obviously from this point, from like the 1600s on to, on to the 1800s. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, uh, like I said, the first section is going to be all about uh, Spain and Portugal, and that's simply because chronologically, they are the first two countries to really begin the exploration. The Spanish are going to go mostly west, the Portuguese are going to go mostly east, and they're going to start this whole colonization thing. So why do they do that? Why does uh, why does Spain and then Portugal uh, colonize so much and leave, uh, leave their own countries to basically explore what they don't really know is there? Um, they do this because as many things apparently seem to be at this point, because of the Ottomans. The Ottomans taking over Constantinople uh, in 1453 is going to close a lot of trade routes, and it's basically going to uh, encircle the Europeans at uh, the Middle East. Obviously, the Middle East is a very, very important territory, especially Constantinople. Um, Constantinople, for those of you who don't know, live... or is basically between um, the uh, European continent and the Asian continent, and then pretty much directly above Africa. And what that basically means is that a lot of trade is going to go right through Constantinople at this time. Um, and it's basically, I mean, the cross-sections of three massive continents, of three massively diverse, massively rich, and massively... Um, I guess, exotic empires, um, you know, the Chinese, mainly, and tribes from Egypt to the Congo are going to be making their way up through Constantinople into Europe so they can trade there. Well, they are going to be making their way up to uh, the Ottoman Empire, mainly uh, or mainly cities like Constantinople or Baghdad, and then from there, the... Uh, Middle Eastern people in the Ottoman Empire are going to be sort of the middlemen between Europe and uh, the rest of the world. And what that basically means is that when the Ottomans take over and basically establish 
uh, you know, con complete control over Constantinople, they enclose a massive trading uh, center for Europeans. And that basically means that they need to find new ways to trade. And so two people come up with two very different ideas. Christopher Columbus, who I'd imagine everybody watching this is familiar with Christopher Columbus, um, obviously sails the ocean blue, 1492, um, you know, accidentally discovers America. I mean, discovers America is kind of a, a nice way to put it, but accident, I guess, accidentally trips and falls down a staircase into accidentally discovering America uh, is probably the best way to put it, because uh, he never realized that he was on the Americas. He never actually even landed in the mainland. He landed on a bunch of Caribbean islands, never quite realizing he made it to America, even before he died, uh, that was eventually sort of worked out by the Europeans after he died. So, <clears throat> uh, Christopher Columbus, despite being Italian, by the way, is uh, sailing for the Spanish fleet, lands on the Caribbean islands, not that he knows it, he believes he's in uh, what would later become the Dutch East Indies, um, and what would later, what would even later be called now modern-day Indonesia. Um, what he basically finds is, you know, a bunch of Native Americans, obviously, and um, pillages a lot, kills a lot. Uh, future raids by the, Span the, by the Spanish eventually make it to the mainland. They make contact with the Incans and the Aztecs, um, and pretty much through a lot of things, mostly disease, but also some warfare, some alliances with Native tribes that are uh, rivals of the Aztecs or Incans, um, and some, especially in the Incan Empire, some taking advantage of a civil war at the time. Uh, they are able to pretty much completely collapse the empires within a few decades and establish rule from modern-day Mexico all the way down to modern-day Chile, which is a very, very vast amount of land, and that's why all those countries today um, speak Spanish. Um, the notable exception of Latin America, uh, the one, well, I wouldn't say one, there are three countries that don't, that generally don't speak Spanish. That would be Guyana, Suriname, and Brazil. Guyana was colonized by the British, Suriname was colonized by the Dutch. Those are pretty two small colonies in the grand scheme of Latin America, though. The big one is Brazil. Brazil speaks Portuguese. And that was established in the Treaty of Tordelese uh, between the Portuguese and Spanish. They call on the Pope and ask, basically, they ask the Pope, how can we divide the world fairly? And they just draw a line right down the middle of the map. And everything west of that line goes to the Spanish, and anything east of the line goes to the Portuguese. So that is the Spanish. Um, the Portuguese, of course... Um, as I said, take a very different route. Uh, they take a route through Vasco da Gama's uh, sort of travels. He travels all the way down through, uh, all the way down to South Africa, all the way around Africa, and um, past Africa into the Indian Ocean, in which he's able to establish and connect a massive trade, uh, massive trade line between Portugal and um Countries like India, China, sort of Japan, but Japan's pretty isolationist at this point, um, and is basically able to 
Oh, and I should say, of course, the Indonesians. Indonesia is uh, the Spice Islands. Indonesia is a very vast and very, um, I guess, I don't, uh, has a very good climate for growing spices, I'll say. Um, and so Portugal establishes trade and begins, as most Europeans will at this point, uh, pillaging, destroying, murdering people a lot. So um, they are able to take over the Indonesian islands, at least uh, all the ones that have spices on them, and Portugal is able to control a lot of the spice trade, which, as you can probably imagine, and as we've, I believe, all learned at this point, spices are very, very important and very, very expensive in Europe. And so, um, basically, through Portugal being able to take over Indonesia, they are able to spread their influence and make Lisbon, the capital of Portugal, um, the commercial center of Europe. And so that basically wraps up my first section of um, exploration. You have the Spanish and the Portuguese really starting this whole thing. Eventually, though, um, after some decades, you get a little bit of pushback, mainly for the Portuguese, because Portugal, kind of small, not very powerful, um, and you have the rise of the Dutch. And the Dutch are basically a replacement of the Portuguese. Um, they take over Indonesia, the Spice Islands, they take over areas of India. Um, they spread their influence really everywhere. They get really close um, in Indonesia, or not Indonesia, they get really close in Oceania. Leave um, Dutch settlers uh, came very close to discovering Australia, uh, had a lot of ships in that area as well. And also Dutch um, Dutch sailors, or I guess I should say Dutch pirates, also get a name for themselves, uh, Dutch pirates, um, really benefit from war and really benefit from trade in that they're able to take over commercial vessels and steal everything. So the Dutch pirates um, and the Dutch uh the Dutch government and the Dutch pirates are able to benefit a lot off trade and influence, but like I said, they basically replace Portugal as a large um, colonizer in the New World, and or both in the New World, like I said, with um, Suriname and some other islands around like uh, Venezuela, but generally uh, they stick to the Old World in the Spice Islands and India. And then finally, because, like I said, uh, the Dutch, they don't really do much. They just basically replace Portugal. The third stage, however, is very important because it is the introduction of the UK and France. And they are going to be two major, major, major powers, um, both in European history and global history. And why is that? Well, they become uh, some of the largest empires the world has ever seen, um, I should say, with the uh, with the British, they actually established the largest empire the world has ever seen um, at the height of their power. I believe, like the 1930s, uh, they had about 25% of the world's um, entire land area under this one little island. I, I wouldn't say little island, but one relatively small island, uh, when compared to the world, is able to control 25% of the world, uh, which is crazy. <laughs> um, and of course, the French, while not having the largest empire ever, 
they're going to have a lot of power and a lot of influence um, during the rise of absolutism. And you're going to see that, po that power continue to grow with uh, King Louis, all of them. There's a lot of Louis. And also, of course, Napoleon. Um, and even, I mean, even after, I know the French get a lot of, um, the French get a lot of shame from the rest of the world for their performance in World War II, but even after that point with Charles de Gaulle, France still has a lot of power, and they still have a lot of power today. Um, their power's significantly diminished, but, I mean, a permanent spot on the United Nations Security Council with veto power is nothing to scoff, scoff at, so. But anyway, as I often do, that's a tangent, and uh, let's get back. So the British and the French, they're going to um, be pretty much everywhere. The British are going to land in Australia and New Zealand, eventually colonizing them. They're going to land in the Americas. We learned about that, obviously, last year. American Revolution kicks off, yada, 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 yada. Um, but, you know, the British are able to land in um, the United States, and they're able to land in Canada. The French and the British are able to both land in India, they take advantage of a weak Mughal Empire, and they basically are able to establish uh, zones of control that, uh, that it's going to go back and forth, and there's going to be a lot of competition on the Indian subcontinent, but eventually the British are going to uh, pretty much take over all of India uh, during, the seven, the, during the Seven Years' War. Um, and take all the French possessions, but for the time being, the British and French are uh, both taking over large parts of India. Uh, in addition to this, they're able to spread their influence to Africa, while not colonizing it, but they are able to influence it uh, through things like the slave trade, um, and through things like um, just general trading, uh, which sort of takes part of the slave trade with slaves going from Africa to the New World, raw resources going from the New World back to the UK and France, and then those, let's put air quotes around industrial or semi-industrial countries, being able to produce new things and bring them, trading them uh, for slaves, keeping that triangular trade between the three uh, areas continuing. And so obviously, um, the British and French are able to control a lot of land, and they're able to get a lot of money off this, mainly due through, mainly due to sugar. Um, I don't know why I said it like that. Sugar, sugar. They're able to get a lot of money from sugar, uh, as well as Spanish and Portuguese. It really drives a lot of. It drives the slave trade, at least at this point in time. Tobacco will eventually take over, but the slave trade, especially in countries like Haiti, and in countries like Venezuela or Guyana, the sugar, the Sugar trade is going to basically run these areas' economies, and they're going to bring in vast amounts of money uh, to Spain, to Portugal, to the British, to the French, and they're going to be able to establish a lot of money, or they're going to be able to establish um, a stronger economy. And so speaking of the economy, we've got two major subjects. We've got mercantilism, which is basically the idea that uh, trade is sort of a one-way avenue. Basically, trade. If you're exporting to someone, you win. If someone's exporting to you, you lose. Um, that's not really how trade works. We have a more 
the more modern understanding is that trade benefits both countries, but mercantilism says that um, to be rich, to be powerful, you have to reduce how much you're importing and increase how much you're exporting. And that's going to drive um, all five of those countries' economies that we've talked about. It's going to drive how they see the world, how they trade, how they use their colonies to continue trading, um, and also how they're able to try and support, or how they try to support themselves uh, because they don't want to trade with another country. Um, in addition to this, you have the price revolution. Um, a lot of silver and gold is found in the Americas, but most importantly, silver from modern-day Bolivia, which would be controlled by the Spanish, um, falls obviously into the Spanish, and this creates a big price revolution across Europe. Uh, creates kind of a big panic with inflation happening across Europe. The Europeans at this point had... Um, had relatively stable prices because um, if you're on the gold standard, you, you know, there's not typically a, a large amount of gold or silver flowing into your country or flowing out at one time, which means prices are able to stay the same. Also, you can't print gold like you can print money, which means inflation is pretty stable. But with the introduction of the New World uh, resources, uh, the price revolution happens and pretty much... I mean, basically resets the Europeans' economy, um, wipes out a lot of savings. Uh, not that there's much savings among the middle or lower class, but especially for the rich, um, there's a big panic. But also a big panic in that um, for the lower and the lower and middle classes, um, you know, it's going to get it's going to be harder for them to get by. And so that's all I believe I wanted to say. So I hope you learned something new, and I hope uh, this was helpful. Goodbye.